0: Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around
1: the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chandler.
0: Welcome back, Food and Faith Podcast listeners. We are so glad to have you with us today. Um, This is Derek and I am here with Anna. Anna, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well. I'm so excited about this interview. I'm really glad to be here with you all.
0: I, I am. I'm thrilled. This is one of the projects that I have been kind of keeping an eye on, and is really near to my heart. Um, so we have two folks who have been involved with the Faithlands project and um, the Faithlands toolkit, um, and you're going to hear a little bit about of what that is, what that means, how you can use it, how you can access it. Um, But I'm really excited that we have um, Brianna Olson and Dr. Hisham Muharram here with us today. Just in terms of background, um, as lead editor for Agrarian Trust Faithlands Toolkit and two editions of the Greenhorn's New Farmers' Almanac, Brianna Olson has connected with farmers, ecologists, ranchers, spiritual leaders, justice advocates, and seed savers across the U.S. and the world. A longtime wanderer, she currently lives in Albuquerque, where she co-edits Edible New Mexico and writes about land, food, art, and identity. Brianna holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Houston and has taught writing at diverse institutions including Mount Temple Pius College at San Quentin State Prison, where she was the managing editor for the student-run literary magazine Open Line. And Dr. Hisham Muharam, uh describes himself, uh, this is his description of himself, I'm a married man and father of three daughters, a scientist by formal training. I am an activist entrepreneur by higher design. I'm a person of faith and I feel my life should sum up the Uh, sum up to benefit others. So I started a community-owned science-based certified organic agribusiness to address issues of environmental and social justice as they're impacted by current conventions of food production. So both of you, welcome, and we're so grateful to have you here with us today. Nice to be here. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Um, So we always start off our podcast with asking this question about geography. What is the geography that forms you? And so that could be your childhood geography, um, the land, the food, the culture, the faith formed you. Um, But it also could be what what is the land that you are on right now especially if you're if you're farming land um, Hisham is outside I can see on zoom he's outside right now and i'm I'm curious literally what the land is around um, around you so um, we'll just um ask both of you to answer that question what is what is your geography what is the, what is the that what are those pieces that have formed you and um, Hisham, are you willing to to start off i i really do want to know like, physically, you know, we're all, the rest of us are sitting inside places and you have these beautiful leaves and trees behind you. (laughs) Tell us about the geography that shapes you.
3: So I happen to be sitting uh, almost in the center of our farm. Uh, There is a uh, pond behind me that has a lot of, um, natural vegetation all around it, and it's full of different types of birds. Um, and the, the two halves of the farm are kind of on either side, north and south of, of me and this pond. Um, and um, we are in what some have argued is the actual geographic center of New Jersey. It's a small town called New Egypt, uh, it was called New Egypt from the 1700s when it first first got established. And I have tried to find out why they called it New Egypt. I still have not discovered the reason. But it was uh, uh, British uh, settlers who started it here. Um, What shapes me as a person is a a collective of experiences up to this point in my journey. Um, I grew up a political refugee uh, in Kuwait. Um, My father left Egypt uh, for political reasons when the military took over in the 50s. Um, And uh, I grew up in Kuwait, which is a desert. The uh, only city at the time in Kuwait was Kuwait City. And it, is, uh, uh, it was a fairly quiet city, really. Not that much going on compared to here and now in the U.S. Uh, but uh, I had uh, a British education, so that definitely shaped who I am. Uh, Early on, and uh, I enjoyed uh, a different type of nature over there. Um, And I learned patience by fishing Mm -hmm. seven o'clock in the morning on the pier of the club that my parents were part of during the summers. My dad would drop me off when he goes off to work. Uh, There was no summer vacation for him. And I would spend the day most of the week uh, in this club, which, because it's a weekday, was empty. So I had the club to myself. And uh, for the entire day, I would do different things, uh, scuba fishing, um, fishing with a rod, uh, um, or just using a trampoline or playing bowling in the bowling alley or whatever. And... um, It was a a unique type of solitude. I was having fun. I was out in a form of nature, which is the desert uh, environment and the sea and um, that sort of thing. But uh, I was alone. Um, And it it, uh, shaped my... uh, Personality characteristics to a large extent. And then I went uh, to uh, England for uh, university studies. Uh, actually, it was a boarding school before university. And um, for about two years, I experienced uh, prejudice and uh, bullying because. But then I came over here, 80, um, and um, thrilled to be here because here I was now in the country where all those amazing TV, uh, series that I watched in Kuwait were filmed and I was going to live the American dream. Um, and I discovered, uh, lots of different realities. None of them, the American dream I saw on TV, um, at least not for someone like me. Um, and it's been a journey because, uh, I discovered my faith here. Um, I honed my um, connection with the need to serve on faith principles here. And um, I tested the hypothesis that uh, a democracy uh, is uh, the place to be if you want to be truly a muslim here and that hypothesis was proven correct on some things and incorrect on other things um but these all uh collude together to shape who i am today as i stand under this tree listening to these beautiful birds sing behind me and uh, i don't know how much is left in my journey of life but Whatever it is, I'm going to do my best to make it count because from my understanding of uh, life as a Muslim today, um, it matters how we live. And it matters after we're dead Uh, because uh, there really is another existence after this physical one. And uh, in that one, the first questions we have to answer is, how did you live this one?
2: That's a question I feel like we could sit with for a while. Um, thank yeah. you. Well,
3: no, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Rana, what about you? What is the geography that has shaped you?
3: Well,
1: thinking about this question, um, I also thought about migration a lot. Um, so I'm originally from Albuquerque, where I live currently, um, and I have a garden in my backyard where I've been learning the magic of seeds sprouting and turning into beanstalks and tomatoes and, and the heartbreak of um, squirrels eating all your lettuce starts and (laughs) (laughs) uh, funks tunneling through your beds of collard greens. Um, And I've traveled and lived a lot of other places in between um being raised here and moving back here and uh one place that came to mind or story that came to mind was um when I was I did a stay in in Mexico and was volunteering in a small town in, in Veracruz and um there was a lot of hardship and poverty there and and part of the story had to do with the fate of the ejido the ejido is a communi- community owned land um model that existed in Mexico for many years, and probably wasn't perfect, it has its critics, but in the 90s, it was um, changed legally so that the, the members of an ejido could sell their land. Before that, they hadn't been able to sell their land. And so folks in this community, a lot of them were hard pressed, and so they did sell that land. And then they spent the money, and the money was gone, land was gone, and I began to realize that that was part of this cycle of of land loss where people were being pressured to move from rural places to cities and then eventually to migrate here, ironically, to sometimes then grow food for us because they could no longer grow food for themselves in those small towns. And so um, that was some time ago, but I think that was the beginning of me Understanding the importance of our relationships to land and land ownership and sort of the path to, to my work with Agrarian Trust now um, and just recognizing that our relationship to land matters so much um, as far as how we're living and how we connect to land and to uh, the people who are growing growing our food. Um, 're cooking our food as well. But uh, New Mexico as a state is also uh, an underrecognized state, shall we say? Um, you know, it also is, is interesting because we have a very, a very unique culture here. And we do have a desert community where it's a challenge to grow food. Um, so I think all of those things have sort of brought me to this, um, the travel and, and learning from these stories to really, um, just appreciate the diversity of the earth and the bounty of the earth and the people on this planet. So, um, th- th- I think for, for me, the geography comes back to the question of this planet and how deeply rooted in all of us are to it. And uh, I hear people will talk about, you know, the viability of living on Mars. And, um, I, I think that they don't quite comprehend how incredible this, this planet is that we live with and, and our responsibility to it. Um, I, I share that belief with Hisham that, that how we live does matter and how we steward the land does matter.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that in, in both ways, in, in in ways both of you were shaped by desert communities. I, I find that fascinating. And um, before we get into talking a little bit, uh, well, talking extensively about the Faithlands Toolkit, um, I wonder, Brianna, if you might share with us a little bit about what is Agrarian Trust? You mentioned you're working with them um can you tell us a little bit about what's what's the background and and who is Agrain Trust and what are you what is Agrain Trust trying to accomplish?
1: Uh, well, the core mission of agrarian Trust is um, land access for next generation of farmers, um, and and we're trying to accomplish that. Uh, in a couple of different ways. One of our our largest um, initiatives is the Agrarian Commons, which is the creation of um, locally governed nonprofit landholding entities in different parts of the country. Um, So we're sort of this uh, intellectual hub and source of advice and leadership for these communities, but they are independently owned and governed. And the idea there is that those parcels of land that enter into the agrarian commons will be protected for farming in perpetuity. And therefore when outgoing farmer retires, which is happening and will be happening in the next decade with great, great frequency, um, I think it's estimated that 400 million acres of land will be um, changing hands. And so what happens with that land is, is incredibly important to all of us. Um, and so it is our mission to, to impact that, to, to help protect land and also to share this vision and this idea that there is another way that land can be held than the way that we're currently tr- currently holding it and then it doesn't have to be treated as a commodity and that we can um, you know the first step for that is for each of us individually to to recognize that we don't have to view lend solely as a commodity or as an asset that has its primary um, value in the stock market or as a financial asset.
0: That makes sense. and And you know, I think that's such a shift in the American mindset to go from land as as a commons, as a common good, as a shared value into ter- instead of a privately held um, resource generating or uh, money driving um, commodity. Uh, which is the way that we always think about land in in our context. And I wonder,
2: uh, maybe I'm reading into facial expressions, but um, Asham, do you have more to to um, add to that that idea of um, the difference between the the individual commodified land and the the shared land, and how and how does that connect with the work that you're doing?
3: Well, it it, it has to do with uh, It has to do with the overall mindset when you look at how uh, the different aspects of our societies have been crafted. Um, And there are common factors, I think, but also distinctions when you go around the world. Uh, In the end, resources in every political entity we call today a country are, uh, in the end, the resources are are usually used to enrich um, a smaller segment of society while keeping the rest as the workers, so to speak. Um, And their lot, uh, their share of the natural resources benefits is very small. Yeah, one of the most important ways it's maintained and that is across all countries I have looked at um, uh, is by um, who has access to land for both uh, residents as well as food uh, and who has access to the uh, value added uh, potential of the land in terms of uh, improving the economic livelihood and lot in life by having greater and greater incomes. Um, so when uh, the, those who have money and power end up controlling large tracts of land, they then need uh, the manpower, the labor, which they employ. But they employ at uh, basically just good enough salaries to keep them needing that employment. Um, And that cycle of power continues. The rich get richer, the poor either stay where they are or they get poorer. And when I look at the U.S. as an example, um, this COVID has really shown how fragile many households are and how many are um Six hundred to seven hundred dollars away from uh, missing a rent payment or a mortgage payment because they've got other things they can't afford. Um, so there's there's a lot of fragility right here that was exposed by COVID. Um, in many other countries, it doesn't need a COVID to expose it. It's very clear just if you go as a tourist. But it, it's, it's, land is one of the most important ways that the power dynamic is maintained. Um, uh, so when we talk about this coming generation, Uh, let's, let's take, uh, our advanced United States of America. Um, we have a lot of youth, uh, that are going to be graduating from high school and with the push for automation, mechanization, computerization, um, even delivery is going to be by machines. So a lot of people that uh, live in what uh, is often called the gig economy or or you know they're employed uh, uh, with uh, barely making it uh, salaries. Um, they're going to be replaced. The question is uh, how does uh, the um, the the money, the wealth in this country, how does it continue to increase its wealth when the market uh, is now being hit in terms of the consumers being able to pay for products and services. If more and more of the U.S. population, both the older as well as the uh, younger, start getting poor, who's going to support all those wealthy corporations and the executives in terms of their annual revenues? Is that when... They start going overseas to more lucrative markets. I don't know, but land is at the center, and access to land is at the center of all of these things.
0: Yeah, that's that's so important that we understand that how how much of the power dynamics, and this is this is nothing new. This is this is a historical struggle of of. Haves and have-nots, and of empire and domination systems of who has access to land. So Agrarian Trust is working to to uh, bring some equity to this idea of who has access to land. Where does Faithlands play into this, and how does how can the Faithlands toolkit be a part of um, creating some of this equity in the way that land use exists in our country?
1: Faith lands, uh, I think, has a, in some ways, a broader mission um, because it's also about reconnecting to land, and I think that's an, an important piece, really, because so many of us, um, you know, are just disconnected to to land completely, or have a very Uh, relationship with certain kinds of land, you know, I had uh, developed a relationship with wilderness long before I began growing food. And so that's a different kind of appreciation for protected wilderness and for conservation than uh, a recognition of what it means to grow food and the importance of food and the value of farmers and how hard what they do is. Um, I think undervaluing farmers and undervaluing the production of food is, is connected to the sort of some of the bad decisions we make or that we help perpetuate by just ignoring them um, as a society. And so, the the Faithlands mission is is multifaceted, and it really is about reconnecting to one another, as well as to to the ground and to the earth and to the food that we grow. Um, and I know Hisham was at the uh, an early conference, and he can say a little bit about that with the toolkit. Um, we wanted to give people a lot of different ideas about what they could do if they're thinking about land that they own, um, or just other ways that they may reconnect to land if if they're a community or individual who doesn't own land, and so. Connecting to land by starting gardens or even starting a small farm is one way and and perhaps the most familiar way. And it's a really valuable way to reconnect to land. But also um, with the toolkit, we share a lot of other alternative ways to, to increase equity. So leasing to a farmer, if you hold land, and particularly a long-term lease or a ground lease where a farmer can um, own improvements to the property and can gain some of their own equity from the, the work that they put into the land. So many farmers are on short-term leases. And so they're constantly at risk of losing their leases, losing their land, and it really disincentivizes um, investing in the soil building and investing in the habitat uh, development and protection, and just doing a good job of sustainable or regenerative farming. And so, having a long-term lease is as valuable as ownership can be if it's if it's a secure lease. Um, and then returning land to people who are dispossessed of their land. Um, and supporting access for those who haven't had easy access um, are other ways that we suggest that that groups might be able to increase and support equity and outland access.
3: Yeah, I I can say a couple of things about that first meeting as uh, as a participant. When we were invited to attend uh, and got together, the first day or so, uh, the focus was on uh, how do we get access to all those acres that are owned in this country by faith organizations and mostly churches. Uh, But as the discussion uh, moved along, a lot of other factors, some uh, Brianna just mentioned, uh, started to come up. And the concept of faith lands being about a lot more than just how do we get access to the church land really, really uh, took off. Uh, And I think uh, a lot of people brought to the discussion those other critical aspects like uh, making sure society starts to value nature again as a source of food versus the supermarket, Uh, such as uh, developing a reverence for uh, that uh, part of the world we live in that we do not control uh, fully. Uh, where other higher powers are uh, you know, uh, exercising power on a daily basis over us. Uh, it, it's a humbling experience in a way, but it also is grounding as far as our role as just one species in this ecosystem on the planet, which is so threatened at the moment. Um, those also became very important uh, at the end of that third day. We realized how much how many issues are all connected to this concept because we were all coming to it from um, different perspectives of faith, but they all had this justice component central to them, whether it's justice to indigenous peoples in this country before Europeans arrived or justice to uh, the enslaved Africans who uh, were the economic backbone for centuries. or to the migrant workers today who still help critically put food on the table uh, here um, in, in our homes. Um, so all of that is now part of Lands. Uh, but at the crux of it is what Brianna and the Agrarian Trust have been doing, which is securing our access to these lands from entities, whether they're the church or a corporation or whatever, that would otherwise take them out of the availability to the rest of the population.
1: And uh, another um, thing that I think is important to mention is, is um as any landholder ages they're confronted with so many options and and perceived constraints about what they can do and and um, and developing land is often an easier choice because or maybe it's not even it doesn't even feel like a choice sometimes because uh, it can be a lot more work to save land and to protect it than to just let it go and have someone take it and um, put an unsustainable housing development there, whatever it may be, um, a mansion or, you know, um, there's a lot of or or just purchasing a farmland property that becomes like a fifth vacation property for a wealthy family and um and that land is so valuable and by moving it out of circulation we all we all lose something and so really finding ways and just engaging in conversations about alternatives
2: is so crucial. It makes me think too, when you say like people, as people are aging, it's also, I think about like churches or religious communities and, you know, we often talk about kind of the life cycle of a religious community and, you know, we talk about hospice care and we talk about churches closing and, but I feel like so, infrequently do we have the maybe the the space and I think that one of the things that Faithlands gives is this invitation to think about how the land is part of that entity it's it's not just are we going to sell the church building right it's not just it's just that this, the things on the land it's also this group of people this this community has been stewarding this land whether they whether we think of it that way or not, stewarding this land often for generations and generations and generations, and looking at the end of a life cycle of a religious community, which is certainly happening across across Christendom, as in this, you know, in this country, um, just, like just opens up such a powerful shift and a powerful way to to see endings as beginnings and to see returns and to see you know that interconnected that way of being Um, and so i i I get excited about thinking about you know active communities that have have land and can can lease it to a farmer but also thinking in that longer term of how how do we as not as individuals but as groups steward like here's a moment in time. What what's the moment in time for this land and this group, and how can how can that be part of of that bigger cycle?
0: No, and I think I think this this hits on on so many things that we've been excited about this in this uh, in this program. Is you know one is creating access for the next generation of farmers. Two is um, thinking about our connections to land as a part of our spiritual lives, but three, you know, and I've, I've said this ad nauseum, I, I have this just deep rooted hatred for lawns and most of what church property is, is, is lawns. And Anna's, Anna's with me on that. And I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate this podcast as I find so many like-minded folks who hate lawns the way that I do. And I, I, I think that, you know, we are, we are, we are, putting so much of our resources as faith communities into, into maintaining pristine lawns instead of thinking about the climate crisis that we're faced with, instead of thinking about the food sovereignty issues that we're faced with, and thinking about how the church land can be a resource in addressing these issues. So this, this particular project hits on a lot of the sweet spots for us here as, as a as a podcast. Um, and I, I'm interested in hearing as, as the toolkit is developing and you're beginning to have these conversations, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing um, faith communities have in terms of making this shift and, and and reimagining their land? What's what are the obstacles? What's what's holding people back from making the kind of moves that the toolkit suggests?
2: Okay.
1: Well, it's funny, I have to speak to lawns first because being in a desert community, um, lawns are even more irksome around here because they just are completely illogical. And yet they they still exist in the imagination as this this marker of something, you know? And so we have a lot more lawns than we should have still at this point, knowing what we know about water resources in in the arid west,
0: that's so annoying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there's what I mean. There's been some progress. There's been a lot of progress. A lot of people xeriscape and have come to love the beauty of desert plants. And it took me time to come to love the beauty of desert plants. Um, but right now, the cacti are flowering, and it's really. A, incredibly stunning um so we did include this is one of the reasons that i included a little bit with one of the farmers who's part of the agrarian commons cameron terry and he we have a little mini case study on him in the toolkit even though he's not really involved in a faith project but he is converting lawns into farms and I think part of it is the first challenge is letting go of preconceived notions of how things should look and, and how things should be and what you've always done. And you know inertia is a powerful force. So, it can just be easy to keep rolling. You know how to do it. You've got the lawn, you've got the landscapers. That's the budget just kind of figures itself out for that. But if you stop and think about it, um, and this is what the Franciscan Friars Conventual did when they were leasing land, it wasn't a lawn, but they had been leasing land to commercial farmers. And all of a sudden they realized this is toxic. What we're doing is Functionally working, it's covering our costs as we need. But what they're doing is, you know, using pesticides and and raising uh, feed corn for animals who are raised conventionally. And, and they realize we don't have to do this. We can change it. So it takes some work and some some sweat, you know, to get behind a mission like that. But. It's also, I think, really liberating once people make that step and then they get excited about it. Um, so the people who've made those changes are the ones that stand out more to me from my work with the toolkit than the ones who didn't, um, because I was I was looking for case studies to share as models of what to do rather than what not to do so. Yeah, I talked to people like, um, you know, Sister Karen Burke, and they were so excited about, just so thrilled with the work that they'd done and the, the reward that they were getting from it, um, just both on a physical level as well as on a spiritual level, is what stands out to me from those conversations.
0: Hisham, any thoughts on the challenges that you've seen as you've thought about the, uh, the toolkit? Uh, Any thoughts on the challenges that you see for faith communities trying to uh, do this kind of work?
3: So I guess uh, the biggest challenge I think we have is uh, innate, um, we say faith communities, but it it gives a false sense of unity uh, because I do not think we are united in action like we should be Um, there's many faith traditions in the u.s today um, and they would be a formidable coalition if it it really does form in essence when we start talking about changing uh, these aspects of the system by which our country runs Um, it's not that much different in many other countries but let's talk about ourselves Um, it is the way it is because certain groups within the collective society are benefiting and they're not going to stand by and let us change things and redistribute wealth and power so pushback, absolutely. Uh, this is just another aspect of struggle. You've got to understand the threats. And when you start talking about coalitions um, and working across faiths and, and they start to crunch the numbers, they're going to get scared pretty quickly about what is possible in terms of positive changes for the rest of us and negative changes for them. Mm -hmm. And they happen right now to be the ones uh, in control of local, state, and national legislation most of the time, or they have the politicians in their pocket to some extent or another. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, So... They're going to use the tools they have at their disposal, uh, the laws that exist already, which give them a lot of means by which they can control you. uh, And they will legislate new ones uh, to try and stop what a coalition of faith uh, organizations would try and change. They want their mansions. They want their lawns. And they're not going to just stand by and let us take it. So uh, the problem we have is that we still approach it, I think, I may be wrong, but that's the way I'm reading the situation. Uh, Each group saying, what can we do? And by we, they mean themselves. Down the street, there may be a Jewish synagogue that's progressive and is your best ally. Did you reach out to them? Yeah. Down down the other street, maybe a mosque. Did you reach out to them? Yeah. in the next neighborhood over might be a Hindu temple and they've got a really dynamic youth group. Did you reach out to them? Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
3: So once we do, and once we start talking truly as a coalition of faith groups, um, the politicians will listen, the politics on a local and a state level can change, probably national as well, a lot of people who saw us as a threat once they hear what we have to say, because we will or would get access to media and coverage and get into debates and discussions and even arguments, a lot of today's opponents could end up being our best supporters tomorrow when they get engaged with our issues, because our issues are their issues. They just don't realize
0: it. Yeah, that's that's so well said. Um, uh, that's absolutely right. And I, I think that's one of the things that we we really long to see is a, a, a true interfaith coalition around issues of food and faith build uh, around this program. Um, Hisham, I I want to come back to you because we've had we've had plenty of voices on this show speak to. Um, a Christian understanding of of creation, care, stewardship of land, all those sorts of things that uh, food justice, all those sorts of things that we care deeply about. Um, We haven't had a whole lot of opportunity on the show to hear uh, a Muslim voice speak to these same issues. So I'm I'm really interested in hearing from you. What does the Quran have to say about these issues of how we, how we exist in creation? What does it have to say about um, our, our our stewardship and care for the land and and water and air and um, the ways that we, we coexist with the created order. Okay. So
3: in the Quran, God uh, talks to mankind uh, and This is the basic message that our creator in the Quran is saying to our species. We were created and we are being judged um, in this life uh, where we exist as spirits bound in a physical uh, body when the time ends for us on earth uh, and we die the spirit is separated from that physical body with all the opportunities it had to do good or bad Um, but the message is created you and i'm gonna judge you and this is the world that i gave but it is not yours, it is a trust that you, and, and the, the, the word in the Quran literally is that we are trustees. This is not our planet, it's God's planet. And uh, as trustees, we've been given the right to enjoy it, to benefit from it within specific uh, do's and don'ts. And some of the most important do's and don'ts have to do with the rights of other things. So, uh, apart from the requirement to respect each other's rights as a species, our obligation, our requirement from our Creator is to respect the system that He created, to protect it, to nurture it, and not to abuse it, and to respect the rights of everything else that he created, because they were created with their rights as well. So whether it is keeping animals for um, uh, dairy, for um, wool, for eggs, for treatment, uh, uh, to uh, using the soil. It, that most sacred of of things that we were given on earth um it comes with the requirement to study it understand it and benefit from it but not abuse it not to destroy it so it literally is a sin to take a living piece of land and uh out of your focus on profit and yield and productivity uh turn that soil into a dead, inert um, container uh, that can only grow plants, really apply it with sites to control what you don't want to grow. Um, It's not controlling what's in your field, that's the problem. It is how you do it. So in Islam, when we talk about organic control, um, that's that's what Islam would dictate if it would dictate anything about how to grow crops. Um, Islam would, in that uh, now infamous word called Sharia, Islam would to poor a lot of polluting chemicals that could harm the soil and what lives in it and could end up in the water cycle and hurt so much more beyond that plot of land that you are managing. But that's only if regulations are laid into place with that kind of a mindset. And the problem today across the world is that uh, people have decided that the constraints, the ethical constraints of religion and its principles um, are just too much of a hindrance. So the mindset is a problem, and the mindset God wants us to have is in every aspect of your life, whether you're in court uh, fighting for somebody's rights, or uh, you are writing down uh, local legislation to protect natural resources or whatever aspect of your life keep your uh do's and don'ts in f- in front of your eyes all the time so that you don't step on the rights of other things that god created as as people we are required uh, according to the uh, uh islamic uh teachings or the quran teachings we're supposed to re- live in this planet uh, with the understanding that we are um, in God's planet not on our planet
2: which shifts everything right it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about um, land being all about profit yeah. right if it's if it's about profit and amassing wealth then that is the antithesis of of that basic principle, because yes. I mean, it's our land and that we are to benefit from it rather than it being God's land. And being, I, I love the trustees that being those that are to, to care for it.
3: Um, that allows the people to come and say, oh, there's nobody living here.
2: Right. Right. Oh, Right. Well, so we always end our interviews talking about hope. And I think that um, one of the things that's always so striking to me when we ask this question is, you know, we say, you know, it's not the kind of hope that covers over the hard pieces. It's the hope that keeps us going. It's the hope that gets us up in the morning. And um, and as I hear you speak on this, Shama, I feel this hope of just the perspective of how does it turn the world upside down if we actually lived as if this planet was god's and not ours i mean that gives me hope just that the reminder of how revolutionary
3: i want to make sure to say this uh real quick um i'm not uh describing these challenges or these uh, bad behaviors uh to dampen hope no 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 not by any means um there If we want to be fair to the situation, we would describe the problem um, candidly and accurately. And that means saying things that uh, we would rather not hear uh, about the realities. Yeah, so uh, those of us who are trying to be activists on these issues from whatever angle we're coming on, the problem is we're not coordinating that that is a problem but were we to coordinate what is possible it's just amazing because there's so many people engaged with it now with different aspects of this one problem that we have that's
0: just so uplifting Brianna, what, how about you? What, what is it that gives you hope as you're, as you're doing this work?
1: Um, so one thing that gave me hope was actually just all the work that I did and the people that I spoke with and interviewed and invited to contribute to the faith lands toolkit, um, which much of which took place as the pandemic was beginning to take root and unfold. And the election was on the scene and, um, um, everyone that I spoke with gave me such inspiration and reminded me, or educated me, I, I should say, on the existence of so many people who are living into their ethics and who are um, working towards what Hisham was speaking to there of um, not trying to simply discard what feels inconvenient or incompatible with the postmodern world, but but really getting back to to the roots of of what matters. And, um, you know, in terms of challenges, I mentioned inertia before, and I think it's, um, it's so easy to be apathetic and to feel powerless at this moment in time, especially what if we're confronted with agriculture and these massive systems that just feel that they're beyond our control. And so, Knowing and talking with so many people who are involved in projects where they are simply expressing their faith that what they do matters is incredibly inspiring and and uplifting to me. And that is what gives me hope um, because it really does matter what, what we do.
0: Yeah, it, it does. And thank you both so much for uh, the great work that you are doing and the great work that you've shared. Um, how can people connect with this work? How can people find out more about the toolkit? Uh, where are some places that people can connect with? Uh, Agrarian Trust, I'll, I'll plug all of the things so that people know how to connect with you and your work.
1: Well, um, the toolkit is available. It's a free resource, and it's on our website, which is grayintrust.org. And so they can go to the Faithlands um, piece of the website and they can read more about the the background of the Faithlands Initiative and also um, get the toolkit itself and sign up for our newsletter if they want to hear more. Um, We have a Faithlands newsletter specifically as well as an Agrarian Trust newsletter if they want to learn more about some of the other land access work that we're doing and how it intersects with Faithlands. And we have an abridged version of Hisham uh, case study which he authored on the website with a link to his website and some of the opportunities that, that he has at his farm there. So um, I think those are the, the best ways to connect with us also social media, of course, um, which we have a Faithlands uh, specific social media accounts as well as our agrarian trust.
0: Great. And we will put links to all of those things uh, in our show notes for folks who are, are listening to be able to connect with you. And, I, you know, I, I fully concur with what Hisham was saying that um, the idea is um, one that. If we understood ourselves as part of a coalition of folks uh, working together on these issues, then then we would we would make some real progress. And we uh, we are we are hoping to be a part of building that coalition of folks and getting people connected. So we hope that people will connect with you and connect with your work and all of the great resources that you're providing. Uh, Brianna, Hisham, both of you, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insight and, and the work that you're doing. And um, please keep us uh, uh, in the loop as new things develop with Faith Lands. And we hope that we can have you back some time to, to see how things are going. Such a thank pleasure. So it
3: was a pleasure. Thank you very much for everything you've done. Uh, and I uh, appreciate uh, the spotlight and uh, more power to you. I think, Podcasts like these are critical to reach people. So thank you.
0: Thank you. We are excited to invite you to a free conference this summer. It's called Sustaining Church, Reimagining Communities of Faith in a Climate Crisis. The aim of this conference is to bring together theological thinking on creation care with those that are actively growing or starting Christian communities that care for land. The hope is that this will be the first of many conversations that inspire further theological thinking around caring for creation, as well as an opportunity to network and empower localized, growing communities of faith. The conference will be held over Zoom, so even though it's in the UK, you can take part. Some of our keynote speakers will be familiar to fans of this podcast. Nuri Love Parrish, Ellen Davis, and Norman Worsba, Justin name a few a full list of speakers and tickets can be found at www.hazelnutcommunityfarm.com
2: thank you for listening to the food and faith podcast our collaborators are wake forest school of divinity plain song farm the garden church and the keep and till editing is by Derek weston and music by paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.